Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. What's up, Northeast? How y'all doing? Yeah. What's up, Providence Road? So good to see you guys. Man, what an honor. As I considered the word of God, I am I'm literally overwhelmed by how much this text applies to our lives. So we're going to go on a little journey. Y'all good with that? All right, let's put on our hiking shoes, right? We're going to see Jesus this morning. And so I'll start with an analogy. In 2012, Christopher Nolan did it again. Right? Y'all know what I'm talking about? In 2012, they released The Dark Knight Rises. Just four years previous, he had had unprecedented success releasing The Dark Knight. And here we are four years later with The Dark Knight Rises and Batman is plunged into this battle for his life. He's plunged into this battle for the life of his city. And his arch nemesis throughout the entire movie is this character named Bane. Y'all know Bane, right? He's big, he's bald, he's yoked. He got this little weird mask that changed the way he talked, right? Like Bane is a problem. And this dude's whole aim throughout the entire movie is to blow the city of Gotham to smithereens. That's all he wants to do. His plan is intricate and detailed. His operations are resourced. His subjects are loyal to the point of death, and his training is exquisite. And y'all, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, if this wasn't a superhero movie, bro, would have pulled it off. Like, in real life, Gotham would be blown to pieces right now. But... (laughs) Y'all know how it goes, right? Superhero movies, spoiler alert, right? Like Batman saves the end of the day at the end of the movie, right? As he always does. But y'all, there is something really distinct about the character Bane that I think leads him to what should have been and maybe even would have been in real life success. And we see this on full display at the beginning of the movie. In the opening scene the CIA has captured this nuclear physicist. His name is Dr. Pavel, right? And Dr. Pavel was being chased down and hunted by these two other guys, but the CIA, they bag them and grab them, right? Bags over their heads. And so now imagine with me you're on this plane, right? In the opening scene of the movie, you're on this plane. You have the CIA agent, his operatives, right? You have Dr. Pavel, and you have these two unidentified men, They're like assassins, spy types, bags over their heads, arms behind their back. And so the CIA agent, he seems to be a little familiar with them, so he starts grilling them, right? Like, who are you? Why are you here? What do you want with Dr. Pavel? Neither of them seem intimidated. 
He turns his attention to the first guy. He doesn't respond to any of his questions, so he pretends to shoot him. Right? And he turns his attention to the second guy. He's like, your friend didn't fly too good. And we're introduced to the character Bane, and he says, funny, why would you shoot a man before throwing him out of a plane? (laughs) Right? He sees right through his scheme. And so the CIA agent, he's bewildered. He's like, man, this guy's instincts are impeccable. So he asks him this question. He says, who are you? And Bane's answer is profound. He doesn't answer like some novice starting to explain who he is and explain his plan while the superhero makes his escape. No, his answer is simplistic and clear. He says, it doesn't matter who we are. What matters is our plan. They almost succeed in setting off a nuclear bomb in a heavily populated city because they understand this concept, that one's ability to accomplish a common goal is hindered by self-promotion. Today we will come to the story of John the Baptist. He will be approached by this group of men clamoring around him, begging, longing to know one thing about him. Who are you? And would it surprise you if I told you that John's answer was essentially the same as Bang's? Essentially, he says, it doesn't matter who we are. What matters is the plan. Now, before we go any further, I need to say a couple of things to you. I need to say that who you are does matter. Your character does matter. Your well-being does matter. The fact that you are loved by God does matter. But let's be honest with ourselves and with each other. We want far more than that. We want prestige. We want glory. We want to be somebody. But that's not actually what's important when you understand the plan. And if you're thinking like, man, I didn't come here to hear some pastor tell me that I don't matter I just ask that you would stick with me because I believe that in the end you will be convinced because here is the bottom line that God's plan truly is better. And so as we open the word of God today, that is what we will see, that God's plan is better. And here's my hope for us as we leave today, when we leave today, that we will leave with a decreased desire to identify ourselves by our giftings and our status and our prominence and that we will leave with an expounded view of God's plan with all its glorious implications for our lives. So let me pray. Lord, we love you. Oh God, how close this is to our own hearts. They are prone to wonder, oh Lord. And as Pastor Scott said in the call to worship, we must cast our eyes upon you. So Lord, would you help us to do that now? Would you help us to see your better plan? Lord, we pray all this in your perfect name, Jesus. Amen. Let's look at verse 19. Says this was the testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests 
and Levites to ask him, who are you? Right, so we have John the Baptist, right? Not John the author, John the Baptist. He's minding his business, eating locusts and wild honey and whatnot. And off in the distance, he sees this brigade of people. And y'all, like, they're too, too deep, right? Like, they are pulling up on him. And the text tells us that these men were priests and Levites. And what that means is that they were likely very strict law keepers, very traditional, very well respected, and they will prove to be the type of men that can get you knocked off if you step outside of their religious framework. So this would not have been a casual interaction, right? This would have been trial-like in many senses. They viewed it as their responsibility to either validate or invalidate the ministry of those who were influential in the city. And so here they are, the ministry police pulling up on John. And they have one simple question. Who are you? Who are you? Is this not the age-old question? Who are you? Why are you here? What were you created for? Does not our culture have an answer for this question? Do they not try and press it upon us? They answer something distinctly different than John. They say, you want to know who you are? Find your unique identity. You want to be somebody? Create security for yourself and those around you. Do you want to know the meaning of life? Find what makes you happy. You see, our culture asserts that who you are is the only question that matters and that by finding your identity, securing the bag, and creating your happiness, you can find life. As a matter of fact, they assert that by doing these things, you can find salvation. But let's be honest with ourselves for a second. Who is that working for? Do you know anyone chasing their happiness actually happy? Or do you remember when you bought the lie? Maybe it was three years ago, maybe it was three days ago. How did that end up for you? I bought the lie. I buy the lie all the time only to have intimate encounters with rock bottom. You see, the answers that the world provides to the question, who are you, make a very dangerous suggestion. They claim that salvation lies within ourselves. You see, the world wants to know from us a very similar question that the Jews wanted to know from John. Who are you? And there is this subtle, subtle question underneath it. Are you the Messiah? So let me try and tie this all together for us. You see, the Messiah was heralded from the beginning of time to be the savior of both Israel and the world. He would defeat their enemies. He would sit on the throne. He would define right from wrong. He would reign forever. And so let me ask you, who is it the world tells you to be the defender for you? Right? Because if you don't stand up for yourself, who will? Who does the world say should sit on your throne and rule your kingdom? Young king, queen bee. Who does the world give permission to define right and wrong for you? Only you. Because your truth is your truth. And in this economy, who is the savior of the world? You are. So follow your heart. 
Chase your dreams. You can be anything you want to be. And doesn't this resonate with us? Like, if we're honest, we all long to be the captain of our own ship. We all long to get it out the mud, be ourselves made fix our own problems, and create our own realities. Y'all know how much this resonates with us? This resonates with us so much that when Sean Carter, a.k.a. Jay-Z, started calling himself Hove, we didn't bat an eye. He sold 140 million records. When he dropped H to the Izzo, the whole world bobbed their head. Because what can we say? We all want to be God, don't we? But not John. Look at me with the text. They ask him in verse 19, who are you? And verse 20 says, he didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. I am not the Messiah. Y'all, this ain't even what they asked him. But he wanted to make sure he left no doubt. Saints, we must turn and pay attention to a man like this. Here is a man distinct from the world. Here is a man with a different worldview and different priorities. Here is a man who seems to know something that we desperately need to know as well. This man would point to Jesus, point to Jesus, point to Jesus until his own disciples left him. We'll see that next week. And just two chapters later, he's going to say, I must decrease and God must increase. And y'all, we quote him, but we don't mean the same thing he meant. Because when we say it, we mean, God, you must increase so maybe we can ride your coattails. That's not what he was after. Here's a man not swept away by the appeal of Messiahship. Let's revisit the situation, shall we? Dangerous men are asking him to validate his ministry, his life's work, his God-given purpose. And without flinching, he openly confesses, I am not the Messiah. You see, these would not have been the first Men who came to validate their ministry, right? The Jews dealt with people like this all the time. And many people came and wanted to be claimed as the long-awaited Messiah. Some had come before John. Many would come after John. And so the Jews are expecting a certain type of conversation when they pull up on him. But John's answers are completely different than what they expected. Look at the text, verse 19, who are you? Verse 20, I am not the Messiah. 21, are you Elijah then? I am not. Are you the prophet? No. So can you imagine their frustration and their confusion as his answers get shorter and shorter and shorter? And by the time we get to verse 22, they're like, what are you then? We got to give some kind of answer to the people who sent us. Can you tell us anything about yourself? You see, saints, they are frustrated because essentially John has answered, it doesn't matter who we are. What matters is the plan. There is much that we can learn here from John the baptizer. This man, unconcerned with his status or standing, not consumed with his identity, this man who stared danger in the face and his instincts didn't drive him towards safety and security, this is a man who found joy and peace and happiness outside of himself. Y'all see, this was deep for John. 
This was who he was, a man who desired not to be gazed upon because he knew the beauty of another. This is so deep for him, in fact, that he going to misidentify himself. He was too busy staring at God. And so when they ask him the question, are you Elijah? He don't even hit a speed bump before he answered. He's just like, I am not. And it's crazy because Jesus is going to disagree with him. In Matthew 11, it says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has ears hear and listen. And y'all, it's not just here. Every single other gospel asserts that John is Elijah. As a matter of fact, Jesus is going to say that John is the greatest prophet to have ever lived. But John was so wrapped up, y'all. He was so wrapped up in the magnificence of God's plan that he missed himself. He never stopped to count his followers. He never stopped to read his press. His status did not matter to him. He didn't see who he was yet. His impact for the kingdom of God was massive. What a stark contrast to those who are giving everything, looking for who their identity might be, but having little gospel impact. God is showing us something here. If you want to be impactful for the kingdom of God, lesson one, it's not about us. Our contributions are never conclusive. Our investments mean nothing without the hand and the blessing of God. Psalm 127 tells us, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Paul is going to compound on this. And he's going to say in 1 Corinthians, I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And listen to what he says after that. He says, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God. You see, John understood that his status and his prestige and his influence were not an end to themselves, but their only purpose was to advance God's plan. And so when they come to him asking him, who are you? He highlights what he is not in light of the one who is. This is so different, is it not? And y'all, the Jews, they're like, they're confused and they don't like it. That's not the answer that they were looking for. And so they're like, come on, bro. We, we need just a little bit more, Right? We, we need just a little bit more. Who are you then? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. And so here we go. John is finally about to give them something of substance. They ask him this wide open question. Tell us about yourself. Tell us about your ministry. Tell us who you are. Tell us anything. And so here we go. Drum roll. What is John going to say? Verse 23. I am a voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as the prophet Isaiah prophesied. How y'all feel about that answer? Is that super clear? Like a voice? 
Like, really, really, bro? A voice? Like, not a prophet, but a voice in the wilderness. Not a man of significance, but a sound. And, and the, the Pharisees are done, bro. They're like, okay, bro, you got it. Whatever. They don't, they don't even respond to what he says. They're just like, okay, well then, bro, what are you baptizing for, voice? Like, who gave you the right to baptize? You saying you ain't nobody, what are you doing this for? Look at verse 25, that's literally the next thing they say. Why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? But y'all, in their rush to move on, they are missing the crucial message John is trying to give. You see, the Jews are looking at the voice. They're examining the voice. They're investigating the voice, all the while missing what the voice is trying to say. John has something to tell us. He knows something about God. He tried to tell the Jews, and it went right over their heads. They didn't listen, but we have to. His assertion, his quotation from the Old Testament is changing the paradigm. It is changing everything. And in this this quotation, Revelation is beginning to burst through. The dam is beginning to break, and John's understanding of the Messiah is beginning to rush through the cracks. His quotation is Isaiah 40, and it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly Jerusalem to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. Verse 3, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Pause. Anytime we see that capital L-O-R-D, that is the name for Yahweh. And John is like, just in case you missed it, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. John was not just preparing the way for some Messiah. He was preparing the way for the Messiah of God, who, by the way, was God himself. He said, I'm just a voice, man. My only contribution is to bring a message on on behalf of the word that was in the beginning, the word who was God. It was laughable to John. Funny, literally, that they would consider him to be the Messiah, I can imagine him being like, bro, are you crazy? Me? Y'all want me to save this nation? Y'all want me to save the world? I I can't save myself. I am not the Messiah. But the one who is coming, I can't shine his shoes. That's That's what John has to say about himself. Verse 26, he says, someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is coming. He is the one coming after me whose sandal straps I am not worthy to untie. Y'all, y'all know who untied sandal straps? Slaves. The lowest of the lowest slaves. And John says, not even of that am I worthy. So what is it? What is it fueling John's disassociation with Messiahship? 
with prestige, with self-sufficiency. Why wasn't he interested in the Jerusalem Times, 40 under 40, most likely to be the Messiah? Why does John answer no? Like, aren't you intrigued by his lack of concern for their perception of him? Isn't it interesting that he doesn't meet their questions with self-defense? Like, don't you wonder why he doesn't seem to struggle with the same insecurities that we do? He doesn't seem to have the compulsion to be properly understood by them. His pride isn't driving him toward platform, and he's certainly not impressed with the men who seem like they can give it to him. Why is he so content with being just a voice? Maybe the better question is, how can we be more like that? How can we lay down our quest for messiahship? And this is the good news that the text is holding before us. The text has something to say, something to shift our perspectives and change our priorities and transform literally our eternities. So my friend, let me reiterate to you that you will buckle and break under the weight of your own messiahship. You know I'm right. You've experienced it too. And our need to defend ourselves confirms it. Our consuming fear of being misunderstood confirms it. Our bitterness when we're overlooked confirms it. Our need to be accepted and our insecurities and our brokenness and our lack of identity, they all confirm it. Our inability to justify ourselves confirms the fact that we are not the Messiah. And our attempts to be the Messiah, our attempts at self-sufficiency, they multiply in us fear and insecurity and pride and failure. And we fail and we fall and we flounder and we flop. Are you not tired? I'm tired. Don't you want rest? Here is the good news. You can stop trying to be somebody. God has a plan. And as the day in this story concludes with verse 28, we wake up to the bright sunshine of verse 29. The Lamb of God is the plan of God. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God's plan on full display, every word is necessary. Every word is glorious, every word is gospel, every single word is good news. So let's take it word by word and phrase by phrase and see what God has for us. We start with the word lamb. Have you ever considered why the word lamb? Like if you were writing this, the story, be honest, would you, would you use the word lamb right here? If I was writing it, I would be like, look, the king of God, right? Especially, especially if I'm the author, right? Look, the prophet of God. Look, the Messiah of God. <coughs> But John says, look, behold, the Lamb of God. 
And y'all like, we don't got to be too Christian, right? Like, lamb is strange language here. But here's the thing. It's all over the Bible. It's all over the Old Testament. When Abraham was preparing to sacrifice his son in obedience, just as he prepared to do the unthinkable, God said, no, 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 look to your left. Bring me a lamb. When the people of God were getting ready to leave Israel and God said he was going to wipe out all their firstborn, but he said, not yours. Bring me a lamb. When the people's sin in the desert required atonement, God said, I will forgive you. Just bring me a lamb. And when the prophet Isaiah looked forward to the coming Messiah, he did not only see a conquering king, but a suffering servant. And he would be the sacrificial lamb. So why the lamb? Because the lamb has functioned for centuries and decades as a kind of payment for sin. You see, from the beginning, man's sin demanded punishment. You see, we rebelled against a kind and loving and holy God, and we rejected God, our generous creator, and we destroyed his creation. And so, y'all, there needed to be retribution. So from the beginning of time, animals have been slaughtered as a substitute. We can even trace this all the way back to the garden, right? Adam and Eve, they turn from God and they cover their shame in fig leaves. And God is like, that is insufficient. He kills an animal and covers their shame. So from the time of Adam to the time of Jesus, millions upon millions of animals have been slaughtered, lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb for thousands of years. And this reveals to us, brothers and sisters, the serious nature of our sin. God does not take it lightly. Your sin is not a little thing. And if that rubs you the wrong way, I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, it is the truth. Romans 6 says that our sin demands death. But God in his grace, instead of demanding the life of the sinners, he allowed them to use the blood of lambs and bulls and goats. But here's the problem. The blood of lambs was just a band-aid on our cancer. We still weren't justified. We still weren't right with God. The author of Hebrews is going to say it is impossible. Say that word with me, impossible. Impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So what is going on here? What is the point of all the bloodshed? Well, like we said, it points to the heinous nature of our sin, but number two, and more importantly, it foreshadows for us a much greater reality. John is going to say, look, behold, the Lamb of God. You see, this Lamb is different. This won't just any old Lamb. This Lamb belonged to God. This is way different than any of our Lambs. You, You know our Lambs. Right, like our attempts to be right with God outside of Jesus. You know they're just lesser lambs, right? Like do more good, be more kind, curse less, give more, and we end up like Mary with all these little lambs, right? (laughs) Just following us around. But hear me, y'all. God's plan for salvation, his plan for redemption, 
that doesn't need our lambs anymore. Behold the Lamb of God. It is not one that we can purchase or acquire. Behold the Lamb of God. It is no longer our good deeds or our moral triumphs. It is not the Lamb of our self-punishment when we sin or self-justification. This Lamb is not the Lamb of our generosity or our Bible reading or our church attendance. This Lamb is not our Lamb at all. Behold with me, saints, the Lamb of God. And because this is God's Lamb, it can do what other lambs could not, namely take away the sins of the world. Oh, this is good news. Brothers and sisters, God's lamb removes, washes, cleans, takes away our sin. And how will this lamb do this? The same way of the every other lamb has done it in history. God's lamb would be slaughtered. This lamb, God's lamb would be unjustly arrested and falsely accused. He would be beaten within an inch of his life only to have his murder publicly displayed for the entertainment of those who watched. He would have spikes driven through his wrist and nails drove into his feet and a spear driven through his side. Let it rest on you that this is what our sin demanded. Our sin had separated us from a holy God. There was nothing that we could do about it. Our lambs were insufficient. We could not be made right with him. We could not justify ourselves. So hear the good news of the gospel that God provided a lamb. And this lamb, God's lamb, He takes away not just your sin, not just my sin, but it says he takes away the sins of the world. This lamb is not limited in scope or capacity. He takes away the sins of the world, which means that this ministry of the lamb, it is infinite without exception. If every single person were to turn to God, every single person could be saved. Do you understand how massive the outstretched arms of this lamb are? Which means for us that without exception, all sin can be removed. All sin can be taken away. There is no sin too heinous, no act too evil, no failure too frequent to put you outside of the reach of the blood of the lamb. So what this means for us is that we are not too far gone. You hear me say? You hear me, person who doesn't know about this Jesus thing? You hear me, person who just ended up in here by accident? Person online, person at Providence Road, do you hear me? You, you are not too far gone. You were struggling with same-sex attraction. You are not too far gone. You are hiding your addiction. You are not too far gone. You with a broken past or with an abusive relationship. You, 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 you and you. We are not too far gone. We are not outside of the reach of this lamb. What grace is this? What kindness is this? What kind of lamb is this? And just as we thought, oh man, this news can't get any better, we find out that this 
friends, is not just the Lamb of God, it is God himself. Verse 30, John says, this is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. This lamb, this lamb of God is the word from the very beginning. This lamb of God is the one who created all things. This lamb of God is the one whom life and light resided in. This lamb of God is the word became flesh. This lamb of God is the one who we received from grace upon grace. And in the lamb, we have seen the glory of the only begotten son who sits at the right hand of the father. So let us conclude where John began. Would you look at him? Look. Like, y'all, it blew my mind as I sat here that John wasn't coming down the mountain. He wasn't coming down the mountain with revelation of God that the people could not see. He wasn't painting a picture in prophecy that the people could not grasp. No, instead he turned, he pointed, he identified the Lamb of God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. He was really there. This was crazy. And what does this tell us? It tells us that God is not some distant deity. He's not some shadow investor looking for a return. He is boots on the ground. He is visible, hearable, touchable. Why don't you ask the lady at the well who saw God in the flesh and changed everything about her? He was with them. And so if that is true, brothers and sisters, this must change everything. If God has given us a lamb, you don't have to be great. God has given us a lamb, then there is joy in repentance. If God has given us a lamb, then our weakness is better than self-sufficiency. Behold the lamb of God, saints, you can be weak. Behold the lamb of God, it is not up to you. Behold the lamb of God, he takes away the sins of the world so you can cease striving. We can cease validating. We can cease justifying. We can stop looking at ourselves. We can stop desiring the love of the world. We have been loved by God. We can say with John, it doesn't matter who we are. What matters is the lamb and the plan of God. So brothers and sisters, let me pray for us because his plan is better. Jesus, you are good, and we do need you. And you are the perfect lamb. When you take away the sins of the world, and you are kind and you are constant, you are precious and you are perfect. Lord, would you help us to find our identity, our security, our joy in you, to find salvation in you alone. God, you are our perfection. We love you. We pray all this in your perfect name. Jesus.